Part One, Appendix of the Ethics by Spinoza. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ernst Patinama. The Ethics by Benedict de Spinoza, translated by R. H. M. Elwes. Part One. Appendix. In the foregoing I have explained the nature and properties of God. I have shown that He necessarily exists, that He is one, that He is and acts solely by the necessity of His own nature, that He is the free cause of all things, and how He is so, that all things are in God, and so depend on Him that without him they could neither exist nor be conceived. Lastly, that all things are predetermined by God, not through his free will or absolute fiat, but from the very nature of God or infinite power. I have further, where occasion afforded, taken care to remove the prejudices which might impede the comprehension of my demonstrations. Yet there still remain misconceptions, not a few, which might and may prove very grave hindrances to the understanding of the concatenation of things, as I have explained it above. I have therefore thought it worth while to bring these misconceptions before the bar of reason. All such opinions spring from the notion commonly entertained that all things in nature act as men themselves act, namely with an end in view. It is accepted as certain that God himself directs all things to a definite goal, for it is said that God made all things for man, and man that he might worship him. I will therefore consider this opinion, asking first why it obtains general credence and why all men are naturally so prone to adopt it? Secondly, I will point out its falsity. And lastly, I will show how it has given rise to prejudices about good and bad, right and wrong, praise and blame, order and confusion, beauty and ugliness, and the like. However, this is not the place to deduce these misconceptions from the nature of the human mind. It will be sufficient here if I assume as a starting point what ought to be universally admitted, namely, that all men are born ignorant of the causes of things, that all have the desire to seek for what is useful to them, and that they are conscious of such desire. Herefrom it follows, first, that men think themselves free, inasmuch as they are conscious of their volitions and desires, and never even dream, in their ignorance, of the causes which have disposed them so to wish and desire. Secondly, that men do all things for an end, namely for that which is useful to them, and which they seek. Thus it comes to pass that they only look for a knowledge of the final causes of events, and when these are learned, they are content as having no cause for further doubt. If they cannot learn such causes from external sources, 
they are compelled to turn to considering themselves and reflecting what end would have induced them personally to bring about the given event and thus they necessarily judge other natures by their own further as they find in themselves and outside themselves many means which assist them not a little in the search for what is useful for instance eyes for seeing teeth for chewing herbs and animals for yielding food the sun for giving light the sea for breeding fish etc they come to look on the whole of nature as a means for obtaining such conveniences now as they are aware that they found these conveniences and did not make them they think they have cause for believing that some other being has made them for their use as they look upon things as means they cannot believe them to be self-created but judging from the means which they are accustomed to prepare for themselves they are bound to believe in some ruler or rulers of the universe endowed with human freedom who have arranged and adapted everything for human use they are bound to estimate the nature of such rulers having no information on the subject in accordance with their own nature and therefore they assert that the gods ordained everything for the use of man in order to bind man to themselves and obtain for him the highest honour hence also it follows that everyone thought out for himself according to his abilities a different way of worshipping god so that god might love him more than his fellows and direct the whole course of nature for the satisfaction of his blind cupidity and insatiable avarice thus the prejudice developed into superstition and took deep root in the human mind and for this reason everyone strove most zealously to understand and explain the final causes of things but in their endeavour to show that nature does nothing in vain i e nothing which is useless to man they only seem to have demonstrated that nature the gods and men are all mad together consider i pray you the result among the many helps of nature they were bound to find some hindrances such as storms earthquakes diseases etc so they declared that such things happen because the gods are angry at some wrong done to them by men or at some fault committed in their worship experience day by day protested and showed by infinite examples that good and evil fortunes fall to the lot of pious and impious alike still they would not abandon their inveterate prejudice for it was more easy for them to class such contradictions among other unknown things of whose use they were ignorant and thus to retain their actual and innate condition of ignorance than to destroy the whole fabric of their reasoning and start afresh they therefore laid down as an axiom that god's judgments far transcend human understanding such a doctrine might well have sufficed to conceal the truth from the human race for all eternity if mathematics had not furnished another standard of verity in considering solely the essence and properties of figures without regard to the final causes there are other reasons which i need not mention here besides mathematics 
which might have caused men's minds to be directed to these general prejudices and have led them to the knowledge of the truth i have now sufficiently explained my first point there is no need to show at length that nature has no particular goal in view and that final causes are mere human figments this i think is already evident enough both from the causes and foundations on which i have shown such prejudice to be based and also from proposition sixteen and the corollary of proposition thirty two and in fact all those propositions in which i have shown that everything in nature proceeds from a sort of necessity and with the utmost perfection however i will add a few remarks in order to overthrow this doctrine of a final cause utterly that which is really a cause it considers as an effect and vice versa it makes that which is by nature first to be last and that which is highest and most perfect to be most imperfect passing over the questions of cause and priority as self-evident it is plain from propositions twenty one twenty two twenty three that the effect is most perfect which is produced immediately by god the effect which requires for its production several intermediate causes is in that respect more imperfect but if those things which were made immediately by god were made to enable him to attain his end then the things which come after for the sake of which the first were made are necessarily the most excellent of all further this doctrine does away with the perfection of god for if god acts for an object he necessarily desires something which he lacks certainly theologians and metaphysicians draw a distinction between the object of want and the object of assimilation still they confess that god made all things for the sake of himself not for the sake of creation they are unable to point to anything prior to creation except god himself as an object for which god should act and are therefore driven to admit as they clearly must that god lacked those things for whose attainment he created means and further that he desired them we must not omit to notice that the followers of this doctrine anxious to display their talent in assigning final causes have imported a new method of argument in proof of their theory namely a reduction not to the impossible but to ignorance thus showing that they have no other method of exhibiting their doctrine for example if a stone falls from a roof on to someone's head and kills him they will demonstrate by the new method that the stone fell in order to kill the man for if it had not by god's will fallen with that object how could so many circumstances and there are often many concurrent circumstances have all happened together by chance perhaps you will answer that the event is due to the facts that the wind was blowing and the man was walking that way but why they will insist was the wind blowing and why was the man at that very time walking that way if you again answer that the wind had then sprung up 
because the sea had begun to be agitated the day before, the weather being previously calm, and that a man had been invited by a friend, they will again insist. But why was the sea agitated, and why was a man invited at that time? So they will pursue the questions from course to course, till at last you take refuge in the will of God, in other words, the sanctuary of ignorance. So again, when they survey the frame of the human body, they are amazed, and being ignorant of the causes of so great a work of art, conclude that it has been fashioned, not mechanically, but by divine and supernatural skill, and has been so put together that one part shall not hurt another. Hence, anyone who seeks for the true causes of miracles, and strives to understand natural phenomena as an intelligent being, and not to gaze at them like a fool, is set down and denounced as an impious heretic by those whom the masses adore as the interpreters of nature and the gods. Such persons know that, with the removal of ignorance, the wonder which forms their only available means for proving and preserving their authority would vanish also. But I now quit the subject and pass on to my third point. After men persuaded themselves that everything which is created is created for their sake, they were bound to consider as a chief quality in everything that which is most useful to themselves, and to account those things the best of all which have the most beneficial effect on mankind. Further, they were bound to form abstract notions for the explanation of the nature of things, such as goodness, badness, order, confusion, warmth, cold, beauty, deformity, and so on. And from the belief that they are free agents arose the further notions of praise and blame sin and merit i will speak of these latter hereafter when i treat of human nature the former i will briefly explain here everything which conduces to health and the worship of god they have called good everything which hinders these objects they have styled bad and inasmuch as those who do not understand the nature of things do not verify phenomena in any way but merely imagine them after a fashion, and mistake their imagination for understanding, such persons firmly believe that there is an order in things, being really ignorant both of things and their own nature. When phenomena are of such a kind that the impression they make on our senses requires little effort of imagination, and can consequently be easily remembered, we say that they are well-ordered, if the contrary, that they are ill-ordered or confused. Further, as things which are easily imagined are more pleasing to us, men prefer order to confusion, as though there were any order in nature except in relation to our imagination, and say that God has created all things in order. Thus, without knowing it, attributing imagination to God, unless, indeed, they would have it that God foresaw human imagination and arranged everything so that it should be most easily imagined. 
If this be their theory, they would not, perhaps, be daunted by the fact that we find an infinite number of phenomena far surpassing our imagination and very many others which confound its weakness. But enough has been said on this subject. The other abstract notions are nothing but modes of imagining in which the imagination is differently affected. Though they are considered by the ignorant as the chief attributes of things, inasmuch as they believe that everything was created for the sake of themselves, and, according as they are affected by it, style it good or bad, healthy or rotten, and corrupt. For instance, if the motion which objects we see communicate to our nerves be conducive to health, the objects causing it are styled beautiful. If a contrary motion be excited, they are styled ugly. Things which are perceived through our sense of smell are styled fragrant or fetid, is through our taste sweet or bitter, full-flavoured or insipid, if through our touch hard or soft, rough or smooth, etc. Whatsoever affects our ears is said to give rise to noise, sound, or harmony. In this last case, there are men lunatic enough to believe that even God himself takes pleasure in harmony, and philosophers are not lacking who have persuaded themselves that the motion of the heavenly bodies gives rise to harmony, all of which instances sufficiently show that everyone judges of things according to the state of his brain, or rather mistakes for things the forms of his imagination. We need no longer wonder that there have arisen all the controversies we have witnessed, and finally scepticism. For, although human bodies in many respects agree, yet in very many others they differ, so that what seems good to one seems bad to another, what seems well-ordered to one seems confused to another, what is pleasing to one displeases another and so on. I need not further enumerate, because this is not the place to treat the subject at length, and also because the fact is sufficiently well known. It is commonly said, so many men, so many minds. Everyone is wise in his own way. Brains differ as completely as palates, all of which proverbs show that men judge of things according to their mental disposition, and rather imagine than understand. For if they understood phenomena, they would, as mathematicians attest, be convinced, if not attracted, by what I have urged. We have now perceived that all the explanations commonly given of nature are mere modes of imagining, and do not indicate the true nature of anything, but only the constitution of the imagination, and, although they have names, as though they were entities existing externally to the imagination, I call them entities imaginary rather than real, and therefore all arguments against us drawn from such abstractions are easily rebutted. Many argue in this way. If all things follow from a necessity of the absolutely perfect nature of God, 
Why are there so many imperfections in nature? Such, for instance, as things corrupt to the point of putridity, loathsome deformity, confusion, evil, sin, etc. But these reasoners are, as I have said, easily confuted, for the perfection of things is to be reckoned only from their own nature and power. Things are not more or less perfect, according as they delight or offend human senses, or according as they are serviceable or repugnant to mankind. To those who ask why God did not so create all men, that they should be governed only by reason, I give no answer but this, because matter was not lacking to him for the creation of every degree of perfection, from highest to lowest, or, more strictly, because the laws of his nature are so vast as to suffice for the production of everything conceivable by an infinite intelligence, as I have shown in Proposition 16. Such are the misconceptions I have undertaken to note. If there are any more of the same sort, everyone may easily dissipate them for himself with the aid of a little reflection. End of part one, appendix. End of part one. Recording by Ernst Patinama.